Well, I figure we should uh, begin. John, thanks very much for being here tonight. You'll uh, you'll figure out how to scribble in a sec. Uh, and uh, again, there are a set of people who couldn't make it to UW tonight because of uh, weather, but they'll be uh, at home watching this in the uh, warmth of their fire with a glass of wine. So uh, <laughs> you won't be missing any of the students. So it's my pleasure uh, first tonight to introduce John Markoff. John is the uh, uh, computer technology columnist for the New York Times. I'm not sure what your actual title is these days. What is it? Uh, it's actually uh, either West Coast correspondent or senior writer, depending on how important you want me to be. I, I have no idea which is more important. But <laughs> <laughs> at any rate, John has been part of the computer science community for uh, way more than a decade, writes a tremendous set of uh, insightful articles, and became interested at some point in uh, early computing history in the Bay Area, and in particular the influence of the 60s. So one of his uh, books is What the Dormouse Said, and he's going to talk to us tonight for uh, an hour about that. John, I can't thank you enough for doing this. This is really nice. Thanks so much. Sure. Um, evening, everybody. You know, I, I, if you don't hear me uh, or you have something to say while I'm talking, please go ahead. I, a little bit disconcerting, but I guess I'll get the hang of it as we go on. Um, first, just a little bit more about me. I cover Silicon Valley for the New York Times, and I've been uh, doing it now, uh, I guess, longer than anybody, which is kind of uh, um, <laughs> alarming to me, because I never thought I would be the longest surviving daily reporter writing about technology in Silicon Valley, but I am. And I basically began writing about um, computing in the Bay Area in the mid-70s. But uh, I also grew up in Palo Alto. And so this book was a little bit of a personal voyage for, for me. And, uh, and um, uh, this stuff was going all on all around me as I grew up in the Bay Area in the 60s and 70s. And I was largely uh, blissfully ignorant about it. So going, going back, I, I was sort of exploring stuff that was happening back then. And um, uh, <laughs> the book appeared. Uh, a couple of years ago, and I did most of the reporting in uh, 2001 and 2002. And I interviewed about 120 people, and probably to have done the job correctly during a half-year period, probably to have done the job correctly, I should have interviewed about 300. 300 would have gotten that community completely at that time. And I just, I had a half-year leave from the New York Times, and I did what I could in, in the time. And I, it was, it was a learning experience for me, uh, in part because. After I finished, I had a huge respect for what oral historians do, because I'm a reporter, and it turns out that what you do as a reporter is often very different than what you do as, a, as an oral historian. In particular, I, I learned that in the most striking way when I was uh, interviewing Doug Engelbart. And uh, Engelbart, uh, who I'll talk about in, in a while, um, you know, was getting older and vaguer. Uh, when I did my interview, and ultimately I went back to the oral history that had been done with Doug ten, ten years earlier, um, that was uh, just wonderful, and uh, uh, got this great respect for, for these people. Um, so this this book has something of a controversial thesis, um, particularly in terms of other histories of technology about the personal computer industry, and uh, I think sort of at the top level. Um, I'm most in interested in the influence that uh, politics and culture and economics had on technology. And I have my own point of view, and that is that um, essentially that, you know, technology doesn't, despite appearances, particularly now in Silicon Valley, technology does not evolve in a straight line, but that it's very influenced by 
uh, the culture and the and the and the, uh, the politics that are around it uh, when it uh, when it emerges. And in particular, I focused on a very small part of the world, really a uh, a region that was you know a five mile radius during uh, about a fifteen year period. Um, but it was an area that was tremendously uh, affected by the Vietnam War and the counterculture that emerged on the peninsula during the 1960s. And that was sort of driven home to me, actually, um, when I was on book tour. Uh, <coughs> and I was on the Microsoft campus, I guess, two years ago. And uh, I, I gave my talk, and I was signing copies. And uh, a member of the Microsoft uh, Public uh, Relations uh, group walked up to me, and uh, he had just left the White House like two weeks before and come to work at Microsoft, and he was you know, 35 or 30 and dressed as a preppy. And uh, he said to me, you know, I'm really anxious to read your book because it's, it'll give me a window into the world that shaped the president's mind. And it sort of struck home to me. But, you know, if you think about it, um, the echoes of things that happened during the 1960s are still very much sort of driving politics in America today. If you think about what shaped President Bush's worldview, if you think about what shaped Vice President Cheney's worldview, those guys came of age during the 1960s, and a lot of their politics is politics that happened in response to things that were going on in America in the 1960s. So I'm looking much more narrowly at the effect that those things had um, on uh, the, the rise of the personal computer industry. And, um, you know... Can we arrange your microphone, please? Uh, you want me to raise it? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, Hang on a sec. Tell me, if, is this any better? Yeah, that's better. Okay. Um, so, um, you know, not just uh, the social forces, but oftentimes um, our technologies are, are shaped by serendipity. Um, in particular, I think a lot about sort of what caused Silicon Valley to come into being in the way it came into being. I mean, my book, um, you know, I think of the valley as actually many cultures that have interacted with technologies over time. I mean, if you look at the history of the semiconductor industry and compare it to the history of the personal computer industry, they're, they're interwoven because one is dependent on the other. But if you look at the cultures of the people who invented those technologies, they're very different. And... Uh, you know, just thinking about sort of what made Silicon Valley come into uh, into existence. Um, take, for example, the fact that um, William Shockley chose to move to Palo Alto to set up Shockley Semiconductor because his mom lived in Palo Alto. Um, and if that's not serendipitous, what what is? And that's you know, Shockley Semiconductor gave rise to the Trinity's Eight, that gave rise to Fairchild, that gave rise to Intel, and it sort of all comes down to Shockley's mom. Um, or as yeah, I'll tell you later on, was the next one. Um, uh, another two, two other examples on, on the role that sort of uh, indirect forces played on, on, on uh, the development of technology. Think about the importance of the transistor for Silicon Valley. Where would Silicon Valley have been if it wasn't for the transistor? Um, well, if you go back and look at why the transistor was available to the valley, you have to look at the Justice Department uh, antitrust lawsuit that was settled in 1956 against AT&T that led to the compulsory free licensing of the transistor. And I would argue that if it wasn't for that event, 
the transistor would not have been around for the Silicon Company, Valley companies to paint on their canvases. Uh, but nobody, nobody thinks about sort of those sort of strange events. Um, venture capital itself was an artifact of a law that was passed um, that was meant to deal with pension organizations that had the byproduct of creating um, this, this portion of their portfolios they could invest in, in venture capital. Um, the final uh, point I, I wanted to, to sort of put forward in that sort of serendipity uh, con context is um, the availability of LCD technology. If you, uh, this was a story that I haven't actually tracked down, but I've, I've been fascinated by it. Xerox at one point had all of the relevant intellectual property around the flat panel display, and they were about to enforce it. Um, and this is sometime during the 1970s. And as they were about to enforce it, the Justice Department brought a lawsuit against Xerox as a corporation over copier behavior. So the CEO of, of Xerox at that time decided that in order to make Xerox appear as a better citizen, he would not enforce the intellectual property uh, uh, that they own uh, to make them you know, to sort of dress Xerox up. And as a result, there was this LCD technology that allowed the, the flat, flat panel and the laptop uh, industry to emerge. So you take that, and let's think about personal computing, because that's the question I tried to answer. Uh, uh, and just sort of to, to frame it, um, you can argue this on both sides because a lot of people have come to me and said, well, what about the East Coast? You know, um, there was TX0, uh, there was a computer called the Link um, that you could argue were the you know, first single-person computers. And just sort of as a, as a, um, uh, you know, as a question of nomenclature, what I'm talking about is um, the understanding of computing as a media rather than a single person at one computer. And my argument is personal computing in that sense, personal computing as a media, actually emerged around Stanford University at a particular time uh, for a particular set of reasons uh, that were related to the politics and the culture of the time. And uh, I actually didn't start out to write a book. Uh, uh, this book uh, uh, grew out of a dinner that I was invited to in Sausalito, the home of two of my friends. Uh, is it Bill and Anne Duvall? And the Duvalls both worked for Doug Engelbart on the Ogden Project during uh, the 1970s, largely, or late 60s, 1970s. Excuse me? You're breaking yeah. up uh, You're breaking up a little bit. Here. Bridge working on that. Is that because now? of me or because of the network? No, uh, it's not you. Oh. Yeah. Um, should I do anything? Keep talking? Don't move the mic down. Here. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah. Bill Duvall uh, is uh, one of the, a group of young, mostly young men who came to work for Engelbart during the 60s and 70s. And um, he was uh, a kid who'd grown up in the Bay Area, went to Berkeley uh, in the mid-60s, took all the computer science classes he paid two years at Berkeley at the time, dropped out, and came to work at SRI. And he went to work um, on the, in the robotics lab working on shaking uh, the robot and became very disillusioned and began looking for something else to do around the halls of SRI where his dad worked and hit upon the Augment project that Doug Engelbart was running. And uh, one of the first things Doug asked him to do, uh, largely because uh, Alan Kay had not done it. At this point, Alan Kay was a graduate student at the University of Utah, but he had a consulting company, and he had the, he had the contract to write the software 
for the SRI node of the first two nodes of the ARPANET, which became the, what we could the, the internet. And uh, so when, when, that, when the person who was supposed to be executing that contract didn't come through, Bill uh, took over the job. And as a result, he was there for that sort of Watson come here quick moment of the first message that was sent over the first two nodes of the ARPANET. He was on the Metal Park SRI side of that first message, which is kind of an interesting claim. Somebody had to send the first message. Actually, it wasn't a message. It was the first application was remote login. And uh, he wrote the login software for the for the uh, Metal Park side. Anyway, it was, it was a dinner that we had in San Francisco to that's right. It passed on G because of some buffer issue, but uh, which, which has been documented. Uh, that's right. So the first message. To the yeah, question in San Diego. Uh, so uh, the people at the house in Sausalito were uh, the Duvalls and, and Doug Engelbart and a man by the name of Bill English. And his wife, Bill English, was the co-inventor of the mouse, and he had also worked for Engelbart in the 60s. Okay. And then this guy by the name of, um, of Ted Nelson. Um, now, of course, I've lost the point. Um, so, uh, Engelbart is uh, one of the gentlemen with the white ties. He's sitting in the, in the middle of the picture, and just to his left in the horn room the glasses is uh, Bill English. And English was the engineer's engineer, um, uh, and he was actually the one who would implement Doug Engelbart's ideas, uh, as most importantly, the mouse. But, uh, you know, my argument is, Almost all of the ideas in the world of modern personal computing were de developed by this project, the Augment project, in the 60s, and then refined at Xerox Park and ultimately commercialized. Uh, and the other person who was uh, at, at the dinner was a man by the name of uh, Ted Nelson, uh, who I guess you could best call uh, the Don Quixote of personal computing. Uh, he's the inventor of hypertext. He was doing a lot of the, the things that Doug was doing on the West Coast on the East Coast at the same time. And um, he's a fascinating character um, who's also a pack rat. And during this dinner, he actually had a video camera running. And uh, you know, the thing that sort of inspired me at this dinner was that I'd heard all the stories from the technology uh, that was developed, but I really hadn't heard about what was going on in people's lives while they were developing the technology. And that was sort of the original uh, inspiration. Is somebody has to capture these stories while people are still alive. And after uh, the dinner, I sort of talked to the Duvalls, and we realized that nobody was doing it. You know, largely uh, the focus of most uh, histories of technology is on the technology and not on the surrounding milieu. And so we started to capture uh, we started to capture these things as uh, as video with the idea of making a documentary. But none of us were documentary uh, filmmakers, and so it ended up devolving into a book. But um, when I started my project, I went and, and saw Ted because he had this tape of the dinner, and there were all these wonderful stories. And uh, of course, you know, the inventor of hypertext couldn't find the tape. So some historian someday will go through. Ted Nelson's personal effects and will find the contents of that dinner. Um, but um, Ted, um, yeah, can you hear us in San Diego, John? A book called Computer Lib and Dream Machines. Actually, if you can we can hear you here. Microsoft, we can hear you. I'm sorry, yeah. San Diego oh. wanted to ask you a question, but it sounds like you can't hear them. Yeah, so we can't. 
Yeah. What we really need you to do is can move you your question? comment. Yeah, I need. We need you to. If you can hear us, we need you to move your microphone down. Uh, hey Jeff, there's there's an echo cancellation problem which they're working on. You just have to live with it for a bit. Okay. Thanks. It's not um, where the microphone situated. Sorry. Go ahead, John. So, uh, Computer Lib was a book that was very influential in the early 1970s. Um, that uh, that basically captured a lot of these ideas, and it was inspired almost an entire in its entirety, or the, the sort of the media was inspired, um, or the design of the book was uh, uh, was inspired by by um, Stuart Brand's uh, whole Earth catalog, which I'll sort of wrap around to. Um, but um, one more story on on Ted Nelson. Um, I, I saw Ted a, a number of years ago at Doug Engelbart's, um, I guess it was his 82nd or 83rd birthday. And it's not that he just turned 81. No, no. Or 82. He's, I went to his birthday. Yeah, I was, you went to his 83rd, I think. So, anyway, I, he's over 80, we've established that. It was one of his birthdays. And um, I walked in the door, and Ted was there, and I hadn't seen Ted Nelson for three or four years. and. He didn't say hello or you know how are you or he simply raised his hand like this and said I have discovered conclusive proof that I invented the back button, which is something that only uh, Ted Nelson could could say. Uh, later that night, apparently uh, Doug and Ted, who were sort of old friends and colleagues, got into a terrible fight um, over some issue of computer arcana, but. Um, so what I did um, in working on this book is I picked um, a bookstore that has been sort of a community center in the Bay Area in the 1960s. This is Kepler's Books, and Kepler's has moved a couple of times, but this is where Kepler's was originally. Um, it's dated 62, um, and it was kind of uh, you know an early coffee house and bookstore, and um, it attracted sort of an itinerant crowd. It started as a paperback bookstore, but if you sort of draw a circle around Kepler's at that point um, in, the, in the 60s and the first half of the 70s, um, you'll find that there were a number of institutions. Um, first of all, there were the two laboratories on both sides of the Stanford campus. There was uh, Engelbart's Augment Lab, which was basically right across the street at SRI. And on the other side of the Stanford campus was John McCarthy's Stanford AI Lab, which had been started in 64. And then during the 1970s and 1970, on the other side, um, it sort of like forms a triangle, Palo Alto Research Center located, all within about five miles of a whole other set of institutions that defined the counterculture um, that was alive and sort of thriving on the Bay Area at the time. There was Bob Albrecht's People's Computer Company, which moved a couple places, but was within a couple blocks of, of, of here. Um, there was a really interesting um, uh, uh, sort of research center called the International Center for Advanced Study, which I'll, International Foundation for Advanced Study, which I'll get to in a second. There was um, the Portola Institute, which served as the funding agency for the whole Earth truck store and was tied to this International Foundation. There was the Free University, which at its peak had as many as, as 50,000 students and which um, attracted people like John McCarthy, um, the, the well known computer scientist who was the founder of the Stanford AI Lab. There was the Briar Patch Market, which was about a half a mile away. Um, and they were all sort of intermingled with these, uh, 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 with these computer laboratories. Um, so that was the world that Engelbart uh, started Augment in. And um, that, you know, I, 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 I tend to think of, of Engelbart as sort of the Moses of personal computing. 
And um, he actually had much more of an impact than that. And that one of the other, uh, you know, sort of points about Doug's career that I like to, to, to bring out is that he began as uh, sort of working as an electrician uh, at the NASA uh, uh, Ames Wind Tunnel on the Mountain View, uh, on the Mountain View uh, Naval Air Base. And while he was there, he came in contact with the notion of scaling um, that is used routinely by aerodynamicists, except what they do is they start with uh, a small wooden model and then they scale up. But he was very familiar with this idea of scaling. And so Doug, um, he started, uh, he got his degree here at Berkeley and he went to, uh, to NASA and then um, he was, uh, and he had this conversation, interesting conversation with Hewlett Packard. Um, uh, in, which, uh, in which he almost went to work for HP, but uh, I'll get to that in a second. But what happened was he was at SRI um, at, as a, uh, uh, basically working in the magnetics laboratory in the late 1950s when the semiconductor emerged as a technology. They had been trying to do these things in magnetic, circuits, uh, magnetic circuitry because they were getting funding to the military, and the military was very interested in and magnetic circuit technology because it worked well in outer space and things like that, which was the market at that point for, for those devices. Um, and as soon as he took a look at the first semiconductors, he realized the principles of scaling applied to, to semiconductors. He wrote a paper called Microelectronics and the Art of Similitude, which was drawing the link uh, between the stuff that he remembered from the wind tunnels at NASA Ames and this new technology. He immediately saw uh, and the reason he was interested in writing this paper was that he immediately saw that this technology was going to scale and that computers would become vastly more powerful. And he gave that paper in Philadelphia at the International Circuits Conference in 1960. So um, I, I saw this in about, uh, I guess it was two years ago, I had an opportunity to ask Gordon Moore more about this because, of course, Moore is thought of as the, as the one who first discovered Moore's Law. He wrote about an electronics magazine in 1965. And here I was saying that, um, uh, that Doug stumbled across it uh, six years earlier. And um, so I got about a half an hour, an hour ride with Moore to, to, to a San Francisco event and a chance to interview him. And so I sort of screwed up my courage uh, because, you know, this is, this is like talking to God. And I told him about finding this and about uh, Engelbart giving this talk in, in, in 1959. And Gordon, who is the most mild-mannered and modest guy in the world, heard, heard the story and looked at me and goes, oh yeah, I was there, I heard the talk. And that was, that was kind of striking to me and sort of confirmation that Doug does deserve some credit. Um, so, you know, Doug worked on this system called the online system, or um, NLS. Um, during the 1960s, and you know, the mouse was invented initially as as a pointing device to work with that system, which was you know the prototype of what would become personal computing. And um, you know, just a couple of little anecdotes about the mouse that are, are, are not widely known. Um, why was it called the mouse? I really tried to find hard. I mean, there are lots of stories, but I think what I tracked down was because for some reason the cursor on the screen was just described as a cat, and therefore the cat chased the mouse around. Mouse, of course, everybody else thinks it was because it had a tail, but the, there was this other component. The other interesting sort of mouse story uh, is, you know, why are there three buttons on, on, on the, why were there three buttons on the original mouse? And 
of course, the, <laughs> oh, that was that was the later innovation. No, no, there are actually three there. You, oh, that's you're right. You see the second wheel, right? But they, they, the first operational one had three. Did they actually have only one on the very first one? Yeah, but there, in that same form factor, they ultimately had three because there was only room for three servos. But Doug was tremendously disappointed by this um, because you know if you ask Doug what the right number of beds was, it was ten, um, and, and actually it would have been more because he was actually in love with this notion of complexity. And um, I think that there was a, a discussion at one point during the in the Ogwin group about ultimately how many commands would be in the Ogwin system. And Doug went around the room asking his researchers how many there were. And um, everybody had an idea. But Doug believed there would be ultimately you know, more than 50,000 commands in the, in, in the, uh, the Ogwin system, which uh, you know, this led years later to this sort of tension between complexity and simplicity and design. So, John, this is Ed. To me, the amazing thing about watching the, the video of the demo is that he was much more infatuated by the corded keying device than he was by the mouse, right? He spent a whole lot more time showing off this thing with all the buttons that he could type with with one hand. Yeah, the, the mouse cord was key, sort of... The cord key was one of those sad failures, although Bill Duvall learned to type on it um, over 50 words a minute. And, and Doug would um, actually tape the cord key, key set, uh, uh, set to his dashboard so he could practice while he was driving. Um, and there, there's actually a, another story I'll tell in a little, uh, in a little bit about that. Um, but um, So that was one thread, um, augment. Another thread, um, which has sort of been lost in history, but which I sort of thought was significant, I think is significant, these two men are Myron Stolaroff on the left and Albert Hoffman on the right. Albert Hoffman, of course, is the inventor of LSD. Myron Stolaroff was um, an engin electrical engineering student at uh, Stanford University who went to work at Ampex uh, after he graduated and had a very successful career at Ampex. Um, he ultimately became um, vice president of strategic planning. Ampex was one of those sort of core companies in the valley around the variant out of which Silicon Valley grew. Um, and in the late 50s, Myron Stolaroff, who'd been sort of raised as a middle-class Jewish kid in Albuquerque and had sort of followed a straight-line career, began to have sort of a midlife crisis. And he ended up falling into this really interesting cult on the Stanford campus um, called the Sequoia Seminar, which was run by a lawyer by the name of Harry Rathbun and his wife. And it basically, it was a, a cult that was sort of pursuing the historical teachings of Jesus. And so he became a a Jew for Jesus for a while. But then this very strange thing happened. Um, there was a, a, an interesting folk character I commend you all to look at on the internet if you have some free time, a man by the name of Al Hubbard. And Al Hubbard was an extremely curious person who had invented an anti-gravity device in the 20s, had become involved with the OSS during World War II, had run guns uh, to Europe and brought uh, uh, uranium back from plutonium processing. And then, in the late 40s or early 50s, he discovered LSD uh, at the Sandoz Chemical Company in Switzerland. Um, so Hubbard was traveling up and down the West Coast, evangelizing LSD in the 50s, when nobody had ever heard of LSD. He was the person who uh, um, uh, introduced Aldous Huxley to LSD in Los Angeles. And he stumbled across Stolaroff's group around the Stanford campus. And what emerged was, Stolaroff became taken with LSD. And what emerged was this interesting kind of spin-off of this Christian cult, where the um, 
where these uh, small uh, a small group of people, I think there were six people, uh, six uh, six couples began experimenting with LSD before anybody had heard what LSD was. Most of them were engineers. There were people from Varian, from Ampex, from Stanford, from Hewlett Packard, and from SRI. And um, they would take LSD one, one week and then they talked about it the next week. So Stolaroff um, really decided that LSD could be used to enhance the creativity of his engineers. And he approached the board of Ampex to allow him to conduct an experiment. And the board said, no way. You know, it's obviously, even though Pontiac, who was the founder of Ampex, had experimented with LSD, that was just not acceptable corporate behavior during the 1950s, even though this was, the this was not an illegal substance at this point. So I think we're, we're talking 61 or, or, or uh, 62 by this point. Uh, so he ignored them, and he ran the experiment anyway. And uh, he took eight engineers into the Sierras with with Hubbard uh, and uh, dosed them all for the weekend to, to engage in this experiment of creativity with predictable uh, 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 results. And a uh, predictable result was uh, one of the engineers uh, later go on to become one of the founding partners of U.S. Venture Partners and a founding investor in Sun Microsystems. Had bad trip. So obviously it had, didn't have any permanent damaging effects, but it scared it out of the, uh, the board of uh, Ampex Corporation. And they drove uh, Stolaroff out of the company. He had to leave. And with some other Stanford engineers, he went on to step up the International Foundation for Advanced Study, which was located a couple of blocks away from Kepler's uh, bookstore in Menlo Park during the mid-1960s, during the last two or three years when the LSD was still legal. So what happened? Well, they, they ran creativity experience over this two or three year period in which they took about 300 to 500 people through this very intense course in the use of LSD, most of them engineers. And so the people like uh, uh, Engelbart and, and, uh, uh, and others in his group went through this, this experience. And one of the people who went through, and, and so my argument, it, it was this vector of this very strong, yes, Okay, so I'll, I'll try to shout, although um, I don't have as good a voice as you do, but I'll do the best I can. Um, so I was talking, I was, I was talking about uh, Myron Stolaroff in this group, the International Foundation for Advanced Study, and the reason I told that story is that one of the people who went through that experiment was a young uh, Army veteran who'd gone to Stanford during the 50s and gone into the Army and then come back and was living on the Mid-Peninsula. His name was Stuart Brand. And Brand was one of their first subjects. And uh, it had this sort of amazing for effect on him. Um, it, dragged, it dragged him more into this community, uh, the emerging sort of counterculture psychedelic community. Brand's an important figure, actually. Um, there's, there's a new book that just came out last month called From Counterculture to Cyberculture, which argues some of the same things that I argue in Dormouse, but has a little bit of a different take on Brand. Um, Fred Turner, who's a Stanford professor, argues that Brand is a sort, of, sort of an important pra uh, protagonist in the development of basically the modern, the modern internet. And I see Brand more as like the, the messenger. I mean, Brand was the person who first coined the term personal computing. Um, he was uh, hanging around the Stanford campus in the early 1960s. And he went, uh, for some reason, through uh, the computing center, which was downstairs at that time, in one of the halls. And he saw these young men playing this game called Space War. 
And this was like probably 62, 63, and he didn't know what to make of it because he'd never seen anything like it in his life. Uh, but he, he, what, he, what stuck in his mind was that these young men were having what he, what he remembered as an out-of-body experience. And what Brandon stumbled across is what we think of as cyberspace today, essentially. And it came back, um, he went on to start the Whole Earth Truck Store as this sort of grand experiment, experiment which became the Whole Earth uh, Catalog. And um, you know, one of the reviews of my book, actually I'm, I'm sort of telling the story for, for, for Bud, um, one of the re reviews of my book uh, by sort of a well-known economist that actually appeared in the New York Times um, belittled the Whole Earth Catalog as a, a book that had, had really no significance. And I was kind of, uh, you know, put out of that. And then shortly thereafter, Steve Jobs gave the commencement speech at Stanford where he talked about what a significant influence the Whole Earth Catalog had, had on his development. I felt, I felt vindicated, actually, by that. Um, but Brand then came back to this, and he had gone uh, on to do these multimedia shows in the, um, in the 1960s. He did American Needs Indians, and then he, did, um, the, he put together basically the multimedia component of the acid tests when this, this drug that had been the part of the subculture was basically all of a sudden shot out into the much broader community during the late 1960s. And when Doug Engelbart and his group came to show the augmented technology to the broader world at the end of 1968, they brought in Brand as a consultant because they knew they were doing basically a presentation. They were pre presenting this to a thousand of the best computer scientists in the world. Um, and so while Doug Engelbart gave this demonstration of this technology in San Francisco, Stuart Brand was back in Menlo Park. They had microwave links between the, the two, two um, facilities running the camera um, as they went back and forth. And basically showed almost everything that we use in the modern sort of internet personal computing world today was first demonstrated in, in that demonstration. But uh, so as a result, Brand saw that technology and he had an opportunity a couple of years later to write an article for the Rolling Stone which was very significant. It was called Space for um, Life and Symbolic Death Among the Computer Bombs, uh, which became a book in which he coined the term uh, personal computer. And it really was sort of the first sort of window into uh, what was going on at Xerox Park and had gone on sale in um, related places. So um, let me move through this a little more quickly. Oh, uh, just one little aside, sort of a, a historical point. Um, Oh, let's see. So that, this is this is Stuart Brand during his whole Earth catalog phase. Um, this is Stuart running the camera during the demonstration that was being given in San Francisco of the augmented technology. And um, this, this is Bill Duvall um, sitting at what was called the yoga workstation. You can see in his left hand is the cord key set, and his right hand is the mouse. And um, you know the, the striking thing about the, the, the sort of the augment group is that um, you know it was really a grand sociology experiment as much as it was the technology development laboratory, and Doug was was really playing with all kinds of things. Um, he had his group go through EST, which was a personal growth movement in the 1960s. He experimented with LSD. Um, all of the members of his research team took it. <coughs> Um, he was reading the, uh, Mao's Little Red Book and sort of trying to take ideas from the red cards. Um, and, you know, it had the predictable consequences. Uh, just at the peak of his influence in the late 1960s, 
the group just essentially spun, spun apart. And, and uh, you know, he, he had a chance to have a tremendous influence, but it was very hard, hard to hold that group together um, during, during the 19, 1960s. I wanted to say one more thing about uh, Brand. Uh, so there's a wonderful history of Xerox Park called Dealers of Lightning that I really recommend to you as the, as the sort of best account of Park. But there's a very funny story about the, about the phrase, Dealers of Lightning. The, the phrase comes from Brand's article in Rolling Stone, um, and it's attributed to Alan Kay, who said we were dealers of, of lightning. Well, that's actually not where the term came from. Um, the term actually came from Chuck Thacker, who's now a Microsoft employee. Um, he was one of the people who developed uh, the first Alto at Xerox. And he came um, from Berkeley to Xerox. And one of the first things that they did at Xerox Park is, is they showed Doug up on stage in the demo using the key set and the, uh, and the mouse. And Thacker turned to someone at Xerox and said, you know, he sat up on stage and dealt lightning with both hands. And so it's Doug who deserves the credit for that, that title. Um, and it's, it's just been lost in history. Um, so uh, the analyst uh, technology um, actually fed into Park. Analyst was licensed by Park, and Park's office in the future was supposed to be built on Doug Engelbart's analyst. And for a variety of sort of political and historical reasons, uh, it never happened. But um, at the same time, on the other side of campus, um, John McCarthy in uh, 1964 had set up the Stanford AI lab. And many of the same ideas that would come to make up the modern personal computer industry were percolating in that lab as well during that period, even though there was very little contact between these two labs. Engelbart, who was an outsider in the computing world, believed in augmentation, that you, took, you would augment uh, the powers of the human mind with computer technology. McCarthy's group, uh, you know, who were at the center of computer science, thought they would replace human, human technologies with, with machines. So they had basically different philosophical orientations. And yet, both threads in 1970 trickled into Xerox Park. Uh, and, and, and Park sort of carried things forward. Um, you know, um, so um, there were also a bunch of uh, interesting uh, uh, people who ended up working uh, in, in the lab. And as much as I think that Stanford AI Lab has not gotten the credit it deserves um, for the impact it had in the world. And, you know, many people talk about the Xerox dashboard of the technologies that spun out of Xerox Park. The same thing happened uh, at Sale uh, before that. It's the picture of a young man by the name of Bill Pitts, who, who grew up as sort of an advanced math student at Stanford. His first year at Stanford, um, he was a, a hacker, but he didn't know, uh, you know about that, that. There was no hacking culture for him to live in, so he spent his free time picking locks on, on the Stanford campus, which is one of the things that hackers do. And he would break into buildings late at night. He broke into almost every building you could think of on campus, including the Herbert Hoover Tower. The, the nipple up on top is, is protected by a, a lock gate. And um, he was driving to Rosati's, which is a beer garden out on campus on Alpine Road one day. And he was on the rest of the road. He noticed this uh, sign that had some lettering that made it clear that this was a Stanford facility. So he made a note to come back there late at night with the intent of breaking into this building. And he drives up on, onto uh, the, the, the sale building and finds that the lights are all on. There are 30 cars in the parking lot because the hackers, uh, you know, that is the seat of hackers.
venture capital from Transparence built the first point operating video game. And it was installed in Tresor uh, Union, which was the Stanford Coffee House, about two months before Nolan Bushnell commercialized computer space, which was the predecessor to Pong. And actually, um, this game, um, uh, Space War, um, they, they didn't call it Space War, they called it, it was a uh, galaxy, galaxy, galaxy game, that's right, they called it Galaxy Game, uh, was just a tremendous hit at the Stanford campus. And then for many of us, including myself, this was our first introduction to interactive computing. We've never seen anything like this. You put a dime on top of uh, the case, you waited your turn to play to play space war, um, and um, you know the interesting thing about McCarthy that's not generally known is that um, you know he set up um, Sam in 1964, uh, left left uh, Princeton to come to the West Coast. He was a red diaper baby. Um, for you who don't know what that term means, it means that his parents were communists, and he was actually in the Communist Party. The first time he was in Stanford, which is in the 50s, the mathematician, he went to Princeton and he stayed in the Communist Party um, when, uh, for during the first years he was in Princeton. There were three people in the Communist cell in Princeton. There was a black lady, there was him, which meant that the third person had to be an FBI agent. McCarthy came back out to the West Coast um, and you know he had already sort of had a huge impact on modern computing. I just the other day, you know, every time I turn around, I learned that McCarthy has done something else significant. Um, I just learned that he had done garbage collection, a list for the late 1950s. I thought it had been invented in part, but in fact it hadn't been. He had done it uh, prior to that. Um, the founding document of the Stanford AI Lab in 1964 um, predicts that uh, the development of an artificial intelligence will take about a decade. They thought they'd be, they'd be you know, able to to have a thinking machine in the middle for a short distance. The most, uh, you know, as you might imagine, the man who invented time shift would probably not look fondly on personal computing. And in fact, uh, McCarthy, after the second meeting or third meeting of the Humble Computer Club, invited them to meet in the Stanford Day Highland, which is very kind of it. They were already sort of bursting at the, at the seams. But he took out an ad, which you can find in the fourth uh, issue of the Homebrew Computer Club newsletter, um, which uh, proposes the idea of a home terminal group. Um, and he thought that maybe for $75 a month, everybody could have a terminal in their, in their home, um, which seems quaint at this time. But it actually led somewhere. I'll, I'll get there in a second. Um, so at the same time, um, McCarthy didn't want to have anything to do with Administration, and they brought a guy, uh, Les Ernest, who actually came from the right, he came from the CIA, and he describes his trajectory as toward the left, but McCarthy was going to the right. But Ernest was responsible for the culture that emerged in Salem during the next decade. And it really was uh, an eclectic lab that was just an absolute wild place. They were having um, psychodramas in the steam panels down below. People like Hans Morphic were living in the attic. Um, they, um, Tesla and Alan Kay reacted negatively to McCarthy and he actually drove people away. Um, he did it, it turns out, it, it, it had a creative impact. Um, this is Whitfield Diffie, Diffie, the inventor of uh, modern public key cryptography. There's an interesting, an interesting story there. Um, Diffie, like many of the other people I, I ran 
parts because he was late to the board draft. Um, you'd be surprised at how many young computer researchers during that period made the decision to come to SAIL or to Armin um, because it was a safe haven from going to Vietnam. Um, anyway, he had, he had come there to work on the issue of program verification with uh, McCarthy, but group worked with that. Um, McCarthy had gone to France in 1970 to give a talk about home computing, not home personal computing, but basically the idea of having a terminal in every home. And because of that, he had a chance conversation uh, with Whit, who was sort of at loose hands and was a good friend of McCarthy's. And um, he began thinking about the problem of what would replace the signature in a digital book. And it was that that led the very straight line to the invention of public key cryptography on which our cement makes the modern internet possible, commercial internet possible. Um, and also, uh, you know, one of the other people who passed through was Larry Tesler. Um, that's Larry. <laughs> I'm sorry, so that's Larry. That's Larry, uh, the big head of red hair, which is no white. Uh, he'd been very involved with the Free University. He was a Stanford math student had grown up with access from working uh, because he worked with Joshua Lambert with his own link. So he had very early experience with having uh, all the resources of a computer at his at, you know, his own beck and call. And um, he also did very early work on word processing and Xerox and uh, text formatting. And that was largely driven. He was working late one night at the Free University with Jim Warren, who was the uh, founder of the whole limit. Sorry, the West Coast Computer Fair. And they were both just sort of muttering to themselves. Because at that point, the way you put together newsletters is you pasted things up and cut things with scissors. And Warren said, well, there's got to be a better way to do this. You know, we've got to be able to use computers. And that sent Tesla off in the direction of thinking about how to design things. Um, he went there at one point and dropped out and left to, to go live on a commune. Um, couldn't find uh, work doing programming while living in a commune in Southern Oregon. And ultimately came back. Alan Kay ran across him and brought him up to the Xerox in, in the early 1970s to help him uh, work on what would, would become uh, the outcome and uh, explore the ideas that, that Kay had had while he was at, uh, at um, sale. The idea of dynamic, this portable personal idea amplifier. Uh, and so there were these, uh, these twin forces that came into uh, that came into uh, the park and, and, and became formalized in what, what, what we think of as modern personal computing and then commercialized by, by Apple. Um, you know, I was looking for examples. Of my, so why did I tell you about all this LSD? Because I really don't think that you could sort of directly make this causal relationship between uh, creativity and LSD in the same neat, tiny way. Um, my argument is a little bit more indirect. I think that one of the things that LSD did at that time was just create chaos. Uh, and I think the chaotic, uh, the edges of chaos, I think is what they say in the Santa Fe Institute, are places where creativity comes from. And that was why, one of the reasons why I was such a great time. But I did try to, to track this down because there's, you know, there's this wonderful story by Kerry Wallace, who's the chemist who invented uh, PCR, polymerase chain reaction technology, which is fundamental to make that underlies modern biotechnology. So, how did he come up with this idea? Well, if you read Wallace's autobiography called Dancing in the Minefield, Mind Field, um, you know, he was driving to his uh, cabin in Mendocino in what he describes as an acid view state when he came up with the idea. It 
which is very direct um, to his, his writer and being on LSD had gave him this creative insight. So I began to wonder. And so, you know, if you think about what made modern graphical user interface possible, you come to this notion of this idea called bit 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 bit, bit, bit block transfer, which was uh, conceived of by Dan Engels while in Sarah's part. So I went to Dan, he was one of the young kids who was uh, a former Stanford graduate student who came to work for Apple. And I said, well, is there, you know, is there any connection? Uh, and I couldn't extract anything that dramatic, but, but Dan did acknowledge he frequently um, smoke marijuana to get into the mood to program, and that's the relaxed thing. But I could never sort of nail it down in the same, in the same way. Um, this all happened within the context of a laboratory that was created by, by Bob Taylor. And Taylor's contribution to this was that he was a he was a protege of JCR Lipliner. He'd been hard, but he funded all of this stuff on both sides of the campus. Um, and he really had a lot of insight into the role of communications and computing. Um, at DARPA, he was sitting at point. He was sitting around one day, and President Johnson was, uh, you know, dealing with this issue of the body count and how the body counts were right. He called McNamara. McNamara called DARPA, and Taylor, who was probably uh, Vietnam War at that time, got himself on the plane with David Liddell, who later would become a, a Xerox researcher and uh, work on Ethernet, on their way to Vietnam to sort out the body count problem. Uh, and you know, he, he never, as he said to me, he never sort of stopped from, from lying about the body count, but at least he got the numbers straight. Because previously, all three uh, military agencies had different ways of counting, so he, he reconciled that. But he came back from Vietnam very disillusioned with the war, left uh, the Pentagon when Nixon was elected, and ended up in Utah for a year, and then helped set up this lab, hired Alan Cave, and sort of uh, brought all these things together. And uh, uh, in the Alto, which of course Xerox never successfully commercialized because there was a cultural disconnect between the management of Xerox and, and the researchers who saw the potential of this technology. The funny story, is so after the Alta was for the first time shown to Xerox's management, one of the Xerox research, the park researchers ran into uh, the, the CEO of Xerox on the uh, on the East Coast and uh, and said, "What did you think? You know, this stuff is amazing." Thing. And the guy turned to him and he said, "You know, I've never seen a man type so fast. They get it all." Uh, and so, and the park researchers decided it would have been smarter if they had a woman demonstrate the machine because then they wouldn't have had this disconnect for these guys to deal with. Um, and so, should I say how many of them? Traditionally, we go to about eight, so you've got half an hour. Okay, okay. I'll, 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 so, here this technology existed. It was bottled up in the laboratory. It was the mid 1970s. And um, it essentially began to leak out. Uh, into the surrounding world. Um, there was no personal computer industry. Uh, very few people had seen machines like the Alto. But that, there was a community of young men who were dying to get their hands on more computing computing power. And essentially, um, both hippies and hackers were hanging around Stanford in, in, the 19, in the 1970s. And a lot of them were meeting as hobbyists at the People's Computer Company in the park. And through our you know, a sort of uh, a set of uh, strange, uh, I guess, political events. Uh, this potluck that was happening every every Wednesday night at the PCC in the mid-70s was coming to an end. And a young man named Fred Moore 
with his, his own electronics work at the People's Computer Company and, and exposure to big computers at the Stanford Medical Center where he was teaching himself to program, he realized if he had a database, he could do this more efficiently. Well, how do you get a database if you're in the mid-1970s and you have no money? Essentially, you don't. And he, he thought, well, if he could set up a, um, a club, he could build his own computer. And that was the sort of the impetus to, to do this. Um, nothing about uh, you know, starting a company, getting rich, or any of that. It was about sort of having the technology to share information. I'd, I'd sort of argue that Fred Moore should be the patron saint of the open source software movement. Um, fascinating character. Uh, he grew up as the son of a colonel who worked in the predecessor to ARPA and the Pentagon in the 1950s. Um, for some reason, growing up in the late 50s in suburban Virginia, he decided he was a pacifist in like 1957 and 58. So what do you have to do if you're a pacifist? Well, he saved his high school earnings in his, after his uh, senior year, and he got a ticket. This was in the middle of the Cuban Revolution. He got a ticket to fly to, uh, uh, to Miami, where he rented a boat, and he got some orange juice and some food, and he started to, to go to Cuba to interpose himself between uh, you know, the Batistas and the Fidelistas, he was going to, you know, talk peace with the, with, uh, uh, with the revolutionaries and the, and the, and the, um, and the, the government. And as luck would have it, he got about 10 miles offshore and the propeller was sheared off of his boat and he spent a day floating. Finally, somebody found him and towed him back to shore. He was so humiliated about this that he had only told one person about this um, and kept it a secret for the rest of his life. Um, he ended up at Berkeley in the fall of 1959, and here on campus, the um, reserve officer training program was mandatory. Um, so in the fall of 59, we're in, the, in the midst of the Leave it to Beaver 1950s, he staged a solitary sit-in on the steps of Sproul Hall, protesting mandatory ROTC. The protest lasted for one day. His dad flew out from Washington, took him home, and that was the end of that, except that um, a movement started on campus, and uh, the administration finally backed down, and um, the mandatory ROTC program was ended on the Berkeley campus two years later. And in 1964, um, many of the organizers of the first free speech movement gave Fred Moore credit, because that was the first time they'd come in contact with the notion that you, know, you could sort of stage a political protest and have an impact. So here's a guy who basically set the spark that started the, the 60s, on the West Coast, and set the, lit the spark that started the personal computer industry. And when he died in a car accident about seven years ago, there wasn't even an obituary in any of the, uh, the papers, which I, I thought was, was, was really quite striking. But what he did was he created in the Homebrew Club um, a, com a community for more 
than two dozen companies that, that, sprang out, that sprang out of this meeting of hackers. This is Lee Felsenstein, who had been a free speech movement activist in the 60s at Berkeley, who would start um, Saul uh, and Os the Osborne, the designer of the Osborne one. Um, he became the first sort of master of ceremonies for the, for the Homebrew Computer Club. Um, and where I decided to sort of end my book, which sort of went through this period sort of mid, uh, sort of 60 to, to, uh, to 75, was at this point, um, uh, just before, this is John Draper, who was another regular at the Homebrew Computer Club, um, early around Apple Computer, and he played an important role in the, in the formation of, of Apple Computer, and this is the Mrs. Wozniak story, um, because, um, when, you know, Wozniak and Jobs were high school friends, and when they met again uh, in Berkeley, one of the things that they did was, um, Wozniak's mom had read a copy of Esquire magazine, which had an article by Ron Rosenbaum called The Mysteries of the Blue Box, which is, was an article about phone freaks. And it's a wonderful article, which you can, I think you can still find it on the internet. It's, it's just a great read. And she Xeroxed a copy and sent it to her son, Steve Wozniak, at, at Berkeley, where he was a sophomore, I think, at the time. And the two Steves set upon this mission to find Captain Crunch, who was described in this article. And uh, they ultimately, uh, he actually showed up in Wozniak's dorm room and walked in and said, it is I, because he was you know, a bit of a hero because of this article. And he taught them, of course, how to make uh, blue boxes, and they you know, capitalized for the first time the first part of the Apple computer. Anyway, um, where I ended, uh, so, so about three months after the Homebrew Club was founded in June of 1975, the first popular personal computer was called the Altair. It was a hobbyist computer. And it was, it, was, it was made by this little company in New Mexico, in Albuquerque. And they were marketing it by driving it around the country in a van. Um, and of course, there was no software at that, at that point. The only piece of software they had was this program called Altair Basic. It had been written by these two kids from Harvard. One of them had dropped out, Bill Gates. Uh, it was called Altair Basic. It wasn't even called Microsoft, although the, com the company was Microsoft with a hyphen between the micro and the soft. Um, and um, the, the van stopped in Palo Alto at Ricky's Hyatt House, which at that point was a sort of well-known hotel. Now it's, a, a, now it's been leveled, unfortunately. It was a landmark that's, that's gone. Um, but the van spent the week there um, showing off Altair computers to over 300 people who showed up because computer was definitely in the air and people were fascinated by these things. Sometime during the weekend, somebody took a copy on paper tape of that Altair basic. And I thought at one point that I could track down that somebody would come forward and acknowledge who who had taken it in. Um, this is Steve Dompier, who was an itinerant Berkeley uh, uh, carpenter, who was an early personal computer hobbyist, uh, who was one of the suspects. And he claims that he didn't do it. And I went and visited him in Montana. And he even has his own copy of Altair Basic signed personally by Bill Gates as proof that he wouldn't have taken it because he already had his own copy. Whatever happened, actually, it got into the hands of a guy named Dan Sokol, was actually the person who brought Wozniak to the first company. And Soho was an engineering manager at, uh, at a semiconductor design firm. And he had access to a high-speed paper tape copying machine. And he made sound copies. And they gave, uh, they gave uh, uh, Altair Basic out to, to, to the members of the Homebrew Club. The deal was, because of the culture of the time, if you got a copy, you had to make a copy and give it to a friend. Because software is something you share to imbue the machine uh, and make it, 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 it 
And so it was the, either the borrowing or the theft of Altair Basic that was at this point. Of, you know, it's really striking to me right at the beginning of the personal computer industry, this tension between you know, proprietary software and shared software was alive. And of course, it's come to, to everything to be digital. Um, I always thought, you know, uh, Gates went on to, to write this famous letter, uh, an open letter to hobbyists accusing them of being private pirates and stealing his intellectual property. And how, can he, how can he make a living if they were going to steal his stuff? Uh, it took six months for the letter to get out from this incident. This is the, the rate of, of, of the uh, information flow was much slower. And I always thought it was, it was funny about it. Gates' assertion, because you know, he was he was using Basic, which was an open source company and Kurtz had written it. It wasn't like he had invented Basic, and he was also using free time on the hardware computers. So the proprietary nature of the product was always kind of interesting. But it really did um, set that collision point between these these two cultures, and um, so that's uh, the little bit of history that I think ended up in sort of um, uh, you know obviously uh, there was a point where. Um, John Doerr was a venture capitalist. Before he said it about, said it about the internet, he, he had said prior, previously that um, personal computing became the largest legally accumulated uh, you know, source of wealth in the world. Um, and it all started out of, out of, out of these you know, threads that came together around Stanford during the 1960s. So if we have any more time and there's questions, I'd be glad to. There is. Ed, how about UW? Questions up there? <laughs> That's for the LSD part, right? Yeah, exactly. before the VC culture emerged. And you know, actually, Doug got a tremendous amount of funding over a long period of time, um, up until um, the mid-'70s, um, where, uh, where SRI management uh, you know, summarily dumped him out into the wilderness, where he sort of stayed for the rest of his career. But you know, uh, uh, first um, Licklider, well, actually, first Bob Taylor, and then Licklider, the ARPA people, gave him tremendous amounts of funding. And um, you know the the interesting question is um, the failure of the licensing deal at, at, at Xerox Park um, because that would have been a route to commercialization of, of his technology. And when English left working for Doug at Park, he went and began managing the Office of the Future program uh, in that laboratory at, at Xerox Park. And you know the the, the reason that that didn't work. Um, 
was, I think, in part the rise of, of Alan Kay's technology that uh, part shifted focus because the Dynabook was such a compelling idea, and part that Doug could never let loose, let loose control of his technology. A lot of his uh, disciples, uh, like, um, like uh, Bill English, had gone to work uh, at Xerox, and they tried to get Doug to sort of to let it loose. And what happened was um, the Xerox stuff didn't go anywhere, and he wasn't able to commercialize it at, at SRI. And you know, he had these very big contracts as the NIC for the first ARPANET. You know, he was the network information center. And Licklider wanted him to do things. Licklider came back to DARPA, and he had these demands on him. And uh, <coughs> Doug was more interested in doing um, sort of more futuristic research and not interested in doing the sort of basic blocking and tackling that you needed to run this network system. And he lost uh, Licklider's faith. And Licklider uh, cut him off at, at one point. And um, you know, he went to Taylor, uh, who was, had been his original funder at Park. And um, you know, asked him to support him, and Taylor was off in another direction. So he basically, it wasn't that he didn't get any funding; it was that he lost funding at a critical juncture because then people had taken his ideas and were running with them. Other from UW, Microsoft. I'm not sure Engelbart, I think his stuff got picked over pretty well. I mean, Doug, Doug uh, bemoans the fact that people didn't really understand what he was talking about to this day. But I think, and you know, his argument is people took away. Well, actually, there is something that just that just. Uh, so there's there's the Doug question, which is uh, separate from uh, something that I recently saw Ted Nelson do. Um, so Ted Nelson is still plugging away, sort of. Uh, claiming that nobody understood him, too. And I recently saw a, a word processor that he's got. And he has this very nice idea. I have no idea whether it would work well. But um, as you scroll the text in his word processor, the fonts uh, smoothly change size so that you're, you've got this area of focus and it goes off. And it seemed like it was an interesting idea. You know, maybe it's, it's, it's too uh, Baroque. But the other thing that, that I think is interesting that um, that Nelson is doing now, I've just been talking to semantic web people in the last couple of weeks. And apparently, if you're, if you're designing for the semantic web, you need a different kind of database than the traditional relational database. You, they, they've built, they've built their, uh, their systems on these things called triples. And you really need, rather than a relational database, you need a database of relations. 
And I think that Ted Nelson has been working precisely on that over the last half decade. So it would be really ironic if Ted was on top of something, you know, three decades afterwards. But in terms of augment, nothing's coming to, there probably is something, but it's not coming to mind right now. Hyperscope just got released. Is that, is That's that the right? augment system that Doug is actually working on. It got funded by the National Science Foundation and just a few months ago, 1.0 was shipped. It's called Hyperscope. There's something called Hyperscope? Yeah, hyperscope, and it's basically augment for the web. Okay. So Doug's ideas are still floating around there, and I, I don't know if they're, you know, Ted Nelson always felt that the, the, you know, they only took half of his idea in taking linking, and they never took the backlinks, so that that was this huge oversight of the design of the web, and I've never been able to figure out that debate. Well, the beautiful thing about Ted's stuff is, is if you read it, there is <coughs> like 10 times more stuff hinted at it's not really explained. You think, hey, you know, that that could be neat if it was like this and this and this. It's more hints than actual ideas. Anything from San Diego? kind of like the culture back then and and then like in the last what was it 10 pages you bring up Bill Gates and that letter and it, it kind of seems like all of a sudden everything had switched or was it him or was it like a cultural change that brought about like proprietary software that sort of thing well I think largely um, there 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 was no there was little there were little bits of software there no software industry, there were people who were selling software. Uh, but there was this culture around these laboratories that believed that software should be shared. I mean, I, I don't think I, I mean, I talked about the values of the hacker culture, I didn't say it was the only no, value, value uh, set that was, uh, was around. I mean, it goes back to MIT, where the people who worked around the AI lab at MIT basically put software in a drawer and, and shared it. And, you know, Richard Stallman, all these uh, these hacker values um, uh, about the sharing of information, but um, I think that the um, the personal computer industry was the first sort of stratum on which the software industry could emerge, and Gates was one of the first people to understand that that was that, that was so. Awesome. So you might think that he was one of the first people to realize like the commercial value of it, without without question. Anyone else here? Anybody else at any of the campuses? Now the, the Apple guys outside. What do you think about uh, <laughs> what do you think about Steve Jobs and like kind of his? It seems like his uh, he kind of had a cultural transition from his early days as uh, you know he even still talks about it and his uh, LSD days and that sort of thing. And then now he's such a commercial figure. Um, well, I know I think that Steve has been very question about whether Steve went to. Now, I actually think that one of the things I've found about the Valley is that uh, that that those it's that tension between the people who are passionate for the technology and people who see a market that makes these things work. It's only when you have the two components together that you, you find that over and over again. And Wozniak and Jobs are the, the archetypical model. I mean, Wozniak wanted to build a computer to share his friends. Jobs understood there was a market for this, and that you, need, you wouldn't have happened without either of those components. And, 
I see that over and over again. Uh, but there, you know, there, there, for me, I, I mean, sort of, I sort of got this for the first time when I was uh, as a reporter in 1981, when the IBM PC had first come out, and there was this thing called the Silicon Valley Computer Club that met in Dyson Auditorium in Sunnyvale. And um, I went to one of these meetings. There were 300 people. At that point, people still all wore white shirts and had pocket protectors. 300 guys. And Evelyn Richards, who was a reporter for the um, Santa Fe Mercury, came and asked questions of the audience, because this was kind of an interesting phenomenon. And at one point, she said, how many of you think uh, are planning to start your own company? And I swear to God, three quarters of the hands in this audience, audience this auditorium went up. And that was, the, that was what set Silicon Valley apart from the rest of the world. Everybody had the belief that if they had a good idea, they could be jumped to Bosnia. And I think that's still true to this day. That's a cultural cultural. I don't know what got it started, but it really has become embedded in the culture. Okay, let's thank our speaker.